so you would like to know it would please your pride to feel that your sister was truly married well, you shall not know. That was my revenge on you, and I do not mean to change it by a hair's breadth. I have come here tonight simply to let you know that I am alive, so that if any violence be done me where I am going there may be a witness. Where are you going? demanded her brother. That is my affair and... I have not the least intention of letting you know. Wickham stood up, but the drink was on him and he reeled and fell. As he lay on the floor he announced his intention of following his sister, and with an outburst of splenetic humor told her that he would follow her through the darkness by the light of her hair, and of her beauty. At this she turned on him, and said that there were others beside him that would draw her hair and her beauty too. As he will, she hissed. For the hair remains though the beauty be gone. When he withdrew the linchpin and sent us over the precipice into the torrent, he had little thought of my beauty. Perhaps his beauty would be scarred like mine were he whirled, as I was, among the rocks of the visp, and frozen on the ice pack in the drift of the river. But let him beware his time is coming. And with a fierce gesture she flung open the door and passed out into the night. Later on that night, Mrs. Brent, who was but half asleep, became suddenly awake and spoke to her husband, Geoffrey, was not that the click of a lock somewhere below our window, but Geoffrey though she thought that he, too, had started at the noise seemed sound asleep, and breathed heavily. Again Mrs. Brent dozed, but this time awoke to the fact that her husband had arisen and was partially dressed. He was deadly pale, and when the light of the lamp which he had in his hand fell on his face, she was frightened at the look in his eyes. What is it, Geoffrey? what dost thou? She asked. Hush little one, he answered, in a strange, hoarse voice. Go to sleep. I am restless, and wish to finish some work I left undone. Bring it here, my husband, she said. I am lonely and I fear when thou art away. For reply he merely kissed her and went out, closing the door behind him. She lay awake for a while, and then nature asserted itself, and she slept. Suddenly she started broad awake with the memory in her ears of a smothered cry from somewhere not far off. She jumped up and ran to the door and listened, but there was no sound. She grew alarmed for her husband, and called out, Geoffrey, Geoffrey. After a few moments the door of the great hall opened, and Geoffrey appeared at it, but without his lamp. Hush, he said, in a sort of whisper, and his voice was harsh and stern. Hush, get to bed, I am working, and must not be disturbed. Go to sleep, and do not wake the house. With the chill in her heart for the harshness of her husband's voice was new to her she crept back to bed and lay there trembling, too frightened to cry, and listened to every sound. There was a long pause of silence, and then the sound of some iron implement striking muffled blows then there came a clang of a heavy stone falling, followed by a muffled curse. Then a dragging sound, and then more noise of stone on stone. She lay all the while in an agony of fear, and her heart beat dreadfully. She heard a curious sort of scraping sound, and then there was silence. Presently the door opened gently and Geoffrey appeared. 
His wife pretended to be asleep, but through her eyelashes she saw him wash from his hands something white that looked like lime. In the morning he made no allusion to the previous night, and she was afraid to ask any question. From that day there seemed some shadow over Geoffrey Brent. He neither ate nor slept as he had been accustomed, and his former habit of turning suddenly as though someone were speaking from behind him revived. The old hall seemed to have some kind of fascination for him. He used to go there many times in the day, but grew impatient if anyone, even his wife, entered it. When the builder's foreman came to inquire about continuing his work Geoffrey was out driving. The man went into the hall, and when Geoffrey returned the servant told him of his arrival and where he was. With a frightful oath he pushed the servant aside and hurried up to the old hall. The workman met him almost at the door, and as Geoffrey burst into the room he ran against him. The man apologized, beg pardon, sir, but I was just going out to make some inquiries. I directed twelve sacks of lime to be sent here, but I see there are only ten. Dame the ten sacks and the twelve too was the ungracious and incomprehensible rejoinder. The workman looked surprised, and tried to turn the conversation. I see, sir, there is a little matter which our people must have done. But the governor will of course see it set right at his own cost. What do you mean, that single quote re single quote rth stone, sir? Some idiot must have put a scaffold pole on it and cracked it right down the middle, and it's thick enough you'd think to stand Hannah Tink. Geoffrey was silent for quite a minute, and then said in a constrained voice and with much gentler manner, Tell your people that I am not going on with the work in the hall at present. I want to leave it as it is for a while longer. All right sir. I'll send up a few of our chaps to take away these poles and lime bags and tidy the place up a bit. No no, said Geoffrey, leave them where they are. I shall send and tell you when you are to get on with the work. So the foreman went away, and his comment to his master was, I'd send in the bill, sir, for the work already done. Pears to me that money's a little shaky in that quarter. Once or twice Delandre tried to stop Brent on the road, and, at last, finding that he could not attain his object rode after the carriage, calling out, What has become of my sister, your wife? Geoffrey lashed his horses into a gallop, and the other, seeing from his white face and from his wife's collapse almost into a faint that his object was attained, rode away with a scowl and a laugh. That night when Geoffrey went into the hall he passed over to the great fireplace, and all at once started back with a smothered cry. Then with an effort he pulled himself together and went away, returning with the light. He bent down over the broken hearthstone to see if the moonlight falling through the storied window had in any way deceived him. Then with a groan of anguish he sank to his knees. There, sure enough, through the crack in the broken stone were protruding a multitude of threads of golden hair just tinged with grey he was disturbed by a noise at the door, and looking round, saw his wife standing in the doorway. In the desperation of the moment he took action to prevent discovery, and lighting a match at the lamp, 
stooped down and burned away the hair that rose through the broken stone. Then rising nonchalantly as he could, he pretended surprise at seeing his wife beside him. For the next week he lived in an agony. For, whether by accident or design, he could not find himself alone in the hall for any length of time. At each visit the hair had grown afresh through the crack, and he had to watch it carefully lest his terrible secret should be discovered. He tried to find a receptacle for the body of the murdered woman outside the house, but someone always interrupted him. And once, when he was coming out of the private doorway, he was met by his wife, who began to question him about it, and manifested surprise that she should not have before noticed the key which he now reluctantly showed her. Geoffrey dearly and passionately loved his wife, so that any possibility of her discovering his dread secrets, or even of doubting him, filled him with anguish. And after a couple of days had passed, he could not help coming to the conclusion that, at least, she suspected something. That very evening she came into the hall after her drive and found him there sitting moodily by the deserted fireplace. She spoke to him directly. Geoffrey, I have been spoken to by that fellow Delandre, and he says horrible things. He tells to me that a week ago his sister returned to his house, the wreck and ruin of her former self, with only her golden hair as of old, and announced some fell intention. He asked me where she is and though, Geoffrey, she is dead, she is dead so how can she have returned oh I am in dread, and I know not where to turn. For answer, Geoffrey burst into a torrent of blasphemy which made her shudder. He cursed Delandre and his sister and all their kind, and in especial he hurled curse after curse on her golden hair. Oh, hush hush, she said, and was then silent for she feared her husband when she saw the evil effect of his humor. Geoffrey in the torrent of his anger stood up and moved away from the hearth, but suddenly stopped as he saw a new look of terror in his wife's eyes. He followed their glance, and then he too, shuddered for there on the broken hearthstone lay a golden streak as the point of the hair rose through the crack. Look, look, she shrieked. Is it some ghost of the dead come away come away? And seizing her husband by the wrist with the frenzy of madness, she pulled him from the room. That night she was in a raging fever. The doctor of the district attended her at once, and special aid was telegraphed for to London. Geoffrey was in despair, and in his anguish at the danger of his young wife almost forgot his own crime and its consequences. In the evening the doctor had to leave to attend to others, but he left Geoffrey in charge of his wife. His last words were, remember, you must humor her till I come in the morning, or till some other doctor has her case in hand. What you have to dread is another attack of emotion. See that she is kept warm. Nothing more can be done. Late in the evening, when the rest of the household had retired, Geoffrey's wife got up from her bed and called to her husband. Come, she said. Come to the old hall I know where the gold comes from I want to see it grow. Geoffrey would fain have stopped her, but he feared for her life or reason on the one hand, and lest in a paroxysm she should shriek out her terrible suspicion, and seeing that it was useless to try to prevent her, 
wrapped a warm rug around her and went with her to the old hall. When they entered, she turned and shut the door and locked it. We want no strangers amongst us three tonight, she whispered with a wan smile. We three nay we are but two, said Geoffrey with a shudder. He feared to say more. Sit here, said his wife as she put out the light. Sit here by the hearth and watch the gold growing. The silver moonlight is jealous see, it steals along the floor towards the gold hourgold. Geoffrey looked with growing horror and saw that during the hours that had passed the golden hair had protruded further through the broken hearthstone. He tried to hide it by placing his feet over the broken place, and his wife, drawing her chair beside him, leant over and laid her head on his shoulder. No do not stir, dear, she said. Let us sit still and watch. We shall find the secret of the growing gold. He passed his arm round her and sat silent and as the moonlight stole along the floor she sank to sleep. He feared to wake her, and so sat silent and miserable as the hours stole away. Before his horror-struck eyes the golden hair from the broken stone grew and grew, and as it increased, so his heart got colder and colder, till at last he had not power to stir, and sat with eyes full of terror watching his doom. In the morning when the London doctor came, Neither Geoffrey nor his wife could be found. Search was made in all the rooms, but without avail. As a last resource the great door of the old hall was broken open, and those who entered saw a grim and sorry sight. There by the deserted hearth Geoffrey Brent and his young wife sat cold and white and dead. Her face was peaceful, and her eyes were closed in sleep but his face was a sight that made all who saw it shudder, for there was on it a look of unutterable horror. The eyes were open and stared glassily at his feet, which were twined with tresses of golden hair, streaked with grey, which came through the broken hearthstone. The gypsy prophecy I really think, said the doctor, that, at any rate, one of us should go and try whether or not the thing is an imposture. Good, said Consideion. After dinner we will take our cigars and stroll over to the camp. Accordingly, when the dinner was over, and the Latour finished, Joshua Consideion and his friend, Dr. Burley, went over to the east side of the moor, where the gypsy encampment lay. As they were leaving, Mary Consideion, who had walked as far as the end of the garden where it opened into the clanway, called after her husband, Mind, Joshua, you are to give them a fair chance, but don't give them any clue to a fortune and don't you get flirting with any of the gypsy maidens and take care to keep Gerald out of harm. For answer Consideion held up his hand, as if taking a stage oath, and whistled the air of the old song, single quote the gypsy countess. Gerald joined in the strain, and then, breaking into merry laughter, the two men passed along the clanway to the common, turning now and then to wave their hands to Mary, who leaned over the gate, in the twilight, looking after them. It was a lovely evening in the summer. The very air was full of rest and quiet happiness, as though an outward type of the peacefulness and joy which made the heaven of the home of the young married folk. Consideion's life had not been an eventful one. 
The only disturbing element which he had ever known was in his wooing of Mary Winston, and the long-continued objection of her ambitious parents, who expected a brilliant match for their only daughter. When Mr. and Mrs. Winston had discovered the attachment of the young barrister, they had tried to keep the young people apart by sending their daughter away for a longer round of visits, having made her promise not to correspond with her lover during her absence. Love, however, had stood the test. Neither absence nor neglect seemed to cool the passion of the young man, and jealousy seemed a thing unknown to his sanguine nature. So, after a long period of waiting, the parents had given in, and the young folk were married. They had been living in the cottage a few months, and were just beginning to feel at home. Gerald Burley, Joshua's old college chum, and himself a sometime victim of Mary's beauty, had arrived a week before, to stay with them for as long a time as he could tear himself away from his work in London. When her husband had quite disappeared Mary went into the house, and, sitting down at the piano, gave an hour to Mendelssohn. It was but a short walk across the common, and before the cigars required renewing the two men had reached the gypsy camp. The place was as picturesque as gypsy camps when in villages and when business is good usually are. There were some few persons round the fire, investing their money in prophecy, and a large number of others, poorer or more parsimonious, who stayed just outside the bounds but near enough to see all that went on. As the two gentlemen approached, the villagers, who knew Joshua, made way a little, and the pretty, keen-eyed gypsy girl tripped up and asked to tell their fortunes. Joshua held out his hand, but the girl, without seeming to see it, stared at his face in a very odd manner. Gerald nudged him, you must cross her hand with silver, he said. It is one of the most important parts of the mystery. Joshua took from his pocket a half-crown and held it out to her, but, without looking at it, she answered, you have to cross the gypsy's hand with gold. Gerald laughed. You are at a premium as a subject, he said. Joshua was of the kind of man the universal kind who can tolerate being stared at by a pretty girl. So, with some little deliberation, he answered, all right, here you are, my pretty girl but you must give me a real good fortune for it, and he handed her a half-sovereign, which she took, saying, it is not for me to give good fortune or bad, but only to read what the stars have said. She took his right hand and turned it palm upward, but the instant her eyes met it she dropped it as though it had been red hot, and, with a startled look, glided swiftly away. Lifting the curtain of the large tent, which occupied the center of the camp, she disappeared within. Sold again, said the cynical Gerald. Joshua stood a little amazed, and not altogether satisfied. They both watched the large tent. In a few moments there emerged from the opening not a young girl, but a stately-looking woman of middle age and commanding presence. The instant she appeared the whole camp seemed to stand still. The clamor of tongues, the laughter and noise of the work were, for a second or two, arrested, and every man or woman who sat, or crouched, or lay, 
stood up and faced the imperial-looking gypsy. Single quote the queen, of course, murmured Gerald. We are in luck tonight. The gypsy queen threw a searching glance around the camp, and then, without hesitating an instant, came straight over and stood before Joshua. Hold out your hand, she said in a commanding tone. Again Gerald spoke, soft voce, I have not been spoken to in that way since I was at school. Your hand must be crossed with gold. A hundred percent, at this game, whispered Gerald, as Joshua laid another half-sovereign on his upturned palm. The gypsy looked at the hand with knitted brows. Then suddenly looking up into his face, said, Have you a strong will have you a true heart that can be brave for one you love? I hope so. But I am afraid I have not vanity enough to say yes. Then I will answer for you. For I read resolution in your face, resolution desperate and determined if need be. You have a wife you love, single quote why yes, emphatically. Then leave her at once and never see her face again. Go from her now, while love is fresh and your heart is free from wicked intent. Go quick go far, and never see her face again. Joshua drew away his hand quickly, and said, Thank you, stiffly but sarcastically, as he began to move away. I say, says Gerald, you're not going like that, old man. No use in being indignant with the stars or their prophet darned. Moreover, your sovereign what of it at least, hear the matter out. Silenced, ribald, commanded the queen, you know not what you do. Let him go and go ignorant, if he will not be warned. Joshua immediately turned back. Single quote at all events, we will see this thing out, he said. No, madam, you have given me advice, but I paid for a fortune. Single quote be warned, said the gypsy. Single quote the stars have been silent for long. Let the mystery still wrap them round. Me dear madam. I do not get within touch of a mystery every day, and I prefer for my money knowledge rather than ignorance. I can get the latter commodity for nothing when I want any of it. Gerald echoed the sentiment. As for me I have a large and unsaleable stock on hand. The gypsy queen eyed the two men sternly, and then said, as you wish. You have chosen for yourself, and have met warning with scorn, and appeal with levity. On your own heads be the doom, Eman, said Gerald. With an imperious gesture the queen took Joshua's hand again, and began to tell his fortune. I see here the flowing of blood. It will flow before long. It is running in my sight. It flows through the broken circle of a severed ring. Go on, said Joshua, smiling. Gerald was silent. Must I speak plainer? Certainly. We commonplace mortals want something definite. The stars are a long way off, and their words get somewhat dulled in the message. The gypsy shuddered, and then spoke impressively. This is the hand of a murderer the murderer of his wife. She dropped the hand and turned away. Joshua laughed. Do you know, said he, I think if I were you I should prophesy some jurisprudence into my system. For instance, you say this hand is the hand of a murderer. Well, 
whatever it may be in the future or potentially it is at present not one. You ought to give your prophecy in such terms as the hand which will be a murderer's, or, rather, the hand of one who will be the murderer of his wife. The stars are really not good on technical questions. The gypsy made no reply of any kind, but, with drooping head and despondent mien, walked slowly to her tent, and, lifting the curtain, disappeared. Without speaking the two men turned homewards, and walked across the moor. Presently, after some little hesitation, Gerald spoke. Single quote of course, old man, this is all a joke. A ghastly one, but still a joke. But would it not be well to keep it to ourselves? How do you mean, will not tell your wife? It might alarm her. Alarm her, my dear Gerald, what are you thinking of why, she would not be alarmed or afraid of me if all the gypsies that ever didn't come from Bohemia agreed that I was to murder her, or even to have a hard thought of her, whilst so long as she was saying Jack Robinson. Gerald remonstrated. Old fellow, women are superstitious far more than we men are. And, also they are blessed or cursed with a nervous system to which we are strangers. I see too much of it in my work not to realize it. Take my advice and do not let her know, or you will frighten her. Joshua's lips unconsciously hardened as he answered, Me dear fellow, I would not have a secret from my wife. Why, it would be the beginning of a new order of things between us. We have no secrets from each other. If we ever have, then you may begin to look out for something odd between us. Still, says Gerald, single quote at the risk of unwelcome interference, I say again be warned in time. Single quote the gypsy's very words, says Joshua. You and she seem quite of one accord. Tell me, old man, is this a put-up thing you told me of the gypsy camp? Did you arrange it all with Her Majesty? This was said with an air of bantering earnestness. Gerald assured him that he only heard of the camp that morning. But he made fun of every answer of his friend, and, in the process of this raillery, the time passed, and they entered the cottage. Mary was sitting at the piano but not playing. The dim twilight had waked some very tender feelings in her breast, and her eyes were full of gentle tears. When the men came in she stole over to her husband's side and kissed him. Joshua struck a tragic attitude. Murray, he said in a deep voice, before you approach me, listen to the words of fate. The stars have spoken and their doom is sealed. What is it, dear tell me the fortune, but do not frighten me. Not at all, my dear. But there is a truth which it is well that you should know. Nay, it is necessary so that all your arrangements can be made beforehand and everything be decently done and in order. Go on, dear. I am listening. Reconcide iron, your effigy may yet be seen at Madame Tussaud's. The jury's imprudent stars have announced their fell tidings that this hand is red with blood your blood. Mary Mary my God, he sprang forward, but too late to catch her as she fell fainting on the floor. I told you, said Gerald. You don't know them as well as I do. 
After a little while Mary recovered from her swoon, but only to fall into strong hysterics, in which she laughed and wept and raved and cried, Keep him from me from me, Joshua, my husband, and many other words of entreaty and of fear. Joshua Considine was in a state of mind bordering on agony, and when at last Mary became calm he knelt by her and kissed her feet and hands and hair and called her all the sweet names and said all the tender things his lips could frame. All that night he sat by her bedside and held her hand. Far through the night and up to the early morning she kept waking from sleep and crying out as if in fear till she was comforted by the consciousness that her husband was watching beside her. Breakfast was late the next morning, but during it Joshua received a telegram which required him to drive over to Withering, nearly twenty miles. He was loath to go, but Mary would not hear of his remaining, and so before noon he drove off in his dog cart alone. When he was gone Mary retired to her room. She did not appear at lunch, but when afternoon tea was served on the lawn under the great weeping willow, she came to join her guest. She was looking quite recovered from her illness of the evening before. After some casual remarks, she said to Gerald, single quote of course it was very silly about last night, but I could not help feeling frightened. Indeed I would feel so still if I let myself think of it. But. After all these people may only imagine things, and I have got a test that can hardly fail to show that the prediction is false if indeed it be false, she added sadly. What is your plan? asked Gerald. I shall go myself to the gypsy camp, and of my fortune told by the Queen. Capital. May I go with you? Oh, no that would spoil it. She might know you and guess at me and suit her utterance accordingly. I shall go alone this afternoon. When the afternoon was gone Mary consigned iron took her way to the gypsy encampment. Gerald went with her as far as the near edge of the common, and returned alone. Half an hour had hardly elapsed when Mary entered the drawing room, where he lay on a sofa reading. She was ghastly pale and was in a state of extreme excitement. Hardly had she passed over the threshold when she collapsed and sank moaning on the carpet. Gerald rushed to aid her, but by a great effort she controlled herself and motioned him to be silent. He waited, and his ready attention to her wish seemed to be her best help, for, in a few minutes, she had somewhat recovered, and was able to tell him what had passed. When I got to the camp, she said, there did not seem to be a soul about, I went into the center and stood there. Suddenly a tall woman stood beside me. Something told me I was wanted she said. I held out my hand and laid a piece of silver on it. She took from her neck a small golden trinket and laid it there also. And then, seizing the two, threw them into the stream that ran by. Then she took my hand in hers and spoke naught but blood in this guilty place, and turned away. I caught hold of her and asked her to tell me more. After some hesitation, she said, Alas alas I see you lying at your husband's feet, and his hands are red with blood. Gerald did not feel at all at ease, and tried to laugh it off. Sully, he said, 
striptease woman has a craze about murder. Do not laugh, said Mary, I cannot bear it, and then, as if with the sudden impulse, she left the room. Not long after Joshua returned, bright and cheery, and as hungry as a hunter after his long drive. His presence cheered his wife, who seemed much brighter, but she did not mention the episode of the visit to the gypsy camp, so Gerald did not mention it either. As if by tacit consent the subject was not alluded to during the evening. But there was a strange, settled look on Mary's face, which Gerald could not but observe. In the morning Joshua came down to breakfast later than usual. Mary had been up and about the house from an early hour. But as the time drew on she seemed to get a little nervous and now and again threw around an anxious look. Gerald could not help noticing that none of those at breakfast could get on satisfactorily with their food. It was not altogether that the chops were tough, but that the knives were all so blunt. Being a guest, he of course, made no sign. But presently saw Joshua draw his thumb across the edge of his knife in an unconscious sort of way. At the action Mary turned pale and almost fainted. After breakfast they all went out on the lawn. Mary was making up a bouquet, and said to her husband, Jet me a few of the tea roses, dear. Joshua pulled down a cluster from the front of the house. The stem bent but was too tough to break. He put his hand in his pocket to get his knife. But in vain. Lend me your knife, Gerald, he said. But Gerald had not got one, so he went into the breakfast room and took one from the table. He came out feeling its edge and grumbling. What on earth has happened to all the knives the edges seem all ground off? Mary turned away hurriedly and entered the house. Joshua tried to sever the stalk with the blunt knife as country cooks sever the necks of Fowler's schoolboys cut twine. With a little effort he finished the task. The cluster of roses grew thick, so he determined to gather a great bunch. He could not find a single sharp knife in the sideboard where the cutlery was kept, so he called Mary, and when she came, told her the state of things. She looked so agitated and so miserable that he could not help knowing the truth, and, as if astounded and hurt, asked her, Do you mean to say that you have done it? She broke in, Oh, Joshua, I was so afraid. He paused, and a set, white look came over his face. Marie, said he, is this all the trust you have in me? I would not have believed it. Oh, Joshua, Joshua, she cried entreatingly forgive me, and wept bitterly. Joshua thought a moment and then said, I see how it is. We shall better end this or we shall all go mad. He ran into the drawing room. Where are you going? Almost screamed Mary. Gerald saw what he meant that he would not be tied to blunt instruments by the force of a superstition, and was not surprised when he saw him come out through the French window bearing in his hand the large gooka knife, which usually lay on the centre table, and which his brother had sent him from northern India. It was one of those great hunting knives which worked such havoc, at close quarters with the enemies of the loyal gookas during the mutiny, of great weight but so evenly balanced in the hand as to seem light, and with an edge like a razor. 
With one of these knives a gooka can cut a sheep in two. When Mary saw him come out of the room with the weapon in his hand she screamed in an agony of fright, and the hysterics of last night were promptly renewed. Joshua ran toward her, and, seeing her falling, threw down the knife and tried to catch her. However, he was just a second too late, and the two men cried out in horror simultaneously as they saw her fall upon the naked blade. When Gerald rushed over he found that in falling her left hand had struck the blade, which lay partly upwards on the grass. Some of the small veins were cut through, and the blood gushed freely from the wound. As he was tying it up he pointed out to Joshua that the wedding ring was severed by the steel. They carried her fainting to the house. When, after a while, she came out, with her arm in a sling, she was peaceful in her mind and happy. She said to her husband, single quote the gypsy was wonderfully near the truth. Too near for the real thing ever to occur now, dear. Joshua bent over and kissed the wounded hand. The coming of Abel Behenna the little Cornish port of Pincastle was bright in the early April, when the sun had seemingly come to stay after a long and bitter winter. Boldly and blackly the rocks stood out against a background of shaded blue, where the sky fading into mist met the far horizon. The sea was of true Cornish hue sapphire, save where it became deep emerald green in the fathomless depths under the cliffs, where the sealed caves opened their grim jaws. On the slopes the grass was parched and brown. The spikes of first bushes were ashy grey, but the golden yellow of their flowers streamed along the hillside, dipping out in lines as the rock cropped up, and lessening into patches and dots till finally it died away altogether where the sea winds swept round the jutting cliffs and cut short the vegetation as though with an ever-working aerial shears. The whole hillside, with its body of brown and flashes of yellow, was just like a colossal yellow hammer. The little harbour opened from the sea between towering cliffs, and behind a lonely rock, pierced with many caves and blowholes through which the sea in storm time sent its thunderous voice, together with a fountain of drifting spume. Hence, it wound westwards in a serpentine course, guarded at its entrance by two little curving piers to left and right. These were roughly built of dark slates placed endways and held together with great beams bound with iron bands. Thence, it flowed up the rocky bed of the stream whose winter torrents had of old cut out its way amongst the hills. This stream was deep at first, with here and there, where it widened, patches of broken rock exposed at low water, full of holes where crabs and lobsters were to be found at the ebb of the tide. From amongst the rocks rose sturdy posts, used for warping in the little coasting vessels which frequented the port. Higher up, the stream still flowed deeply, for the tide ran far inland, but always calmly for all the force of the wildest storm was broken below. Some quarter mile inland the stream was deep at high water, but at low tide there were at each side patches of the same broken rock as lower down, through the chinks of which the sweet water of the natural stream trickled and murmured after the tide had ebbed away. Here, too, rose mooring posts for the fishermen's boats. 
At either side of the river was a row of cottages down almost on the level of high tide. They were pretty cottages, strongly and snugly built, with trim narrow gardens in front, full of old-fashioned plants, flowering currants, colored primroses, wallflower, and stony crop. Over the fronts of many of them climbed clematis and wisteria. The window sides and door posts of all were as white as snow, and the little pathway to each was paved with light-colored stones. At some of the doors were tiny porches, whilst at others were rustic seats cut from tree trunks or from old barrels. In nearly every case the window ledges were filled with boxes or pots of flowers or foliage plants. Two men lived in cottages exactly opposite each other across the stream. Two men, both young, both good-looking, both prosperous, and who had been companions and rivals from their boyhood. Abel Behenna was dark with the gypsy darkness which the Phoenician mining wanderers left in their track. Eric Sansom which the local antiquarian said was a corruption of Sagamanson was fair, with the ruddy hue which marked the path of the wild Norsemen. These two seemed to have singled out each other from the very beginning to work and strive together, to fight for each other and to stand back to back in all endeavors. They had now put the coping stone on their temple of unity by falling in love with the same girl. Sarah Terefusis was certainly the prettiest girl in Pink Castle, and there was many a young man who would gladly have tried his fortune with her, but that there were two to contend against, and each of these the strongest and most resolute man in the port except the other. The average young man thought that this was very hard, and on account of it bore no goodwill to either of the three principles, whilst the average young woman who had, lest worship befall, to put up with the grumbling of her sweetheart, and the sense of being only second best which it implied, did not either, be sure, regard Sarah with friendly eye. Thus it came, in the course of a year or so, for rustic courtship is a slow process, that the two men and women found themselves thrown much together. They were all satisfied, so it did not matter, and Sarah, who was vain and something frivolous, took care to have her revenge on both men and women in a quiet way. When a young woman in her walking out can only boast one not quite satisfied young man, it is no particular pleasure to her to see her escort cast sheep's eyes at a better-looking girl supported by two devoted swains. At length there came a time which Sarah dreaded, and which she had tried to keep distant the time when she had to make her choice between the two men. She liked them both, and, indeed, Either of them might have satisfied the ideas of even a more exacting girl but her mind was so constituted that she thought more of what she might lose, than of what she might gain. And whenever she thought she had made up her mind she became instantly assailed with doubts as to the wisdom of her choice. Always the man whom she had presumably lost became endowed afresh with a newer and more bountiful crop of advantages than had ever arisen from the possibility of his acceptance. She promised each man that on her birthday she would give him his answer, and that day, the 11th of April, had now arrived. The promises had been given singly and confidentially, but each was given to a man who was not likely to forget. 
Early in the morning she found both men hovering around her door. Neither had taken the other into his confidence, and each was simply seeking an early opportunity of getting his answer, and advancing his suit if necessary. Damon, as a rule, does not take Pythias with him when making a proposal, and in the heart of each man his own affairs had a claim far above any requirements of friendship. So, throughout the day, they kept seeing each other out. The position was doubtless somewhat embarrassing to Sarah, and though the satisfaction of her vanity that she should be thus adored was very pleasing, yet there were moments when she was annoyed with both men for being so persistent. Her only consolation at such moments was that she saw, through the elaborate smiles of the other girls when in passing they noticed her door thus doubly guarded, the jealousy which filled their hearts. Sarah's mother was a person of commonplace and sordid ideas, and, seeing all along the state of affairs, her one intention, persistently expressed to her daughter in the plainest words, was to so arrange matters that Sarah should get all that was possible out of both men. With this purpose she had cunningly kept herself as far as possible in the background in the matter of her daughter's wooings, and watched in silence. At first Sarah had been indignant with her for her sordid views, but, as usual, her weak nature gave way before persistence, and she had now got to the stage of acceptance. She was not surprised when her mother whispered to her in the little yard behind the house, Dash go up the hillside for a while. I want to talk to these two. They're both red hot for ye, and now's the time to get things fixed. Sarah began a feeble remonstrance, but her mother cut her short. I tell ye, girl, that my mind is made up both these men want ye, and only one can have ye but before ye choose it'll be so arranged that ye'll have all that both have got done to ye, child go up the hillside, and when ye come back I'll have it fixed I see a way quite easy. So Sarah went up the hillside through the narrow paths between the golden firs, and Mrs. Trefusis joined the two men in the living room of the little house. She opened the attack with the desperate courage which is in all mothers when they think for their children howsoever mean the thoughts may be. Two men, ye're both in love with my Sarah. Their bashful silence gave consent to the barefaced proposition. She went on. Neither of ye has much. Again they tacitly acquiesced in the soft impeachment. I don't know that either of ye could keep a wife. Though neither said a word their looks and bearing expressed distinct dissent. Mrs. Trefusis went on. But if ye'd put what ye both have together ye'd make a comfortable home for one of ye and Sarah. She eyed the men keenly, with her cunning eyes half shut, as she spoke. Then satisfied from her scrutiny that the idea was accepted she went on quickly, as if to prevent argument, single quote the girl likes ye both, and mayhap it's hard for her to choose. Why don't ye toss up for her first put your money together ye've each got a bit put by, I know. Let the lucky man take the lot and trade with it a bit, and then come home and marry her. Neither of ye's afraid, I suppose and neither of ye'll say that he won't do that much for the girl that ye both say ye love. Abel broke the silence, 
it don't seem the square thing to toss for the girl she wouldn't like it herself, and it doesn't seem seem respectful like to her dash Eric interrupted. He was conscious that his chance was not so good as Abel's in case Sarah should wish to choose between them, Are ye afraid of the hazard, not me, says Abel, boldly. Mrs. Trefusis, seeing that her idea was beginning to work, followed up the advantage. It is settled that ye put your money together to make a home for her, whether ye toss for her or leave it for her to choose. Single quote why yes, says Eric quickly, and Abel agreed with equal sturdiness. Mrs. Trefusis's little cunning eyes twinkled. She heard Sarah's step in the yard, and said, Oh here she comes, and I leave it to her. And she went out. During her brief walk on the hillside Sarah had been trying to make up her mind. She was feeling almost angry with both men for being the cause of her difficulty, and as she came into the room said shortly, I want to have a word with you both come to the Flagstaff Rock, where we can be alone. She took her hat and went out of the house up the winding path to the steep rock crowned with a high flagstaff where once the wreckers fire basket used to bron. This was the rock which formed the northern jaw of the little harbour. There was only room on the path for two abreast, and it marked the state of things pretty well when, by a sort of implied arrangement, Sarah went first, and the two men followed, walking abreast and keeping step. By this time, each man's heart was boiling with jealousy. When they came to the top of the rock, Sarah stood against the flagstaff, and the two young men stood opposite her. She had chosen her position with knowledge and intention, for there was no room for anyone to stand beside her. They were all silent for a while. Then Sarah began to laugh and said, Dash I promised the both of you to give you an answer today. I've been thinking and thinking and thinking, till I began to get angry with you both for plaguing me so and even now I don't seem any nearer than ever I was to making up my mind. Eric said suddenly, let us toss for it, lass. Sarah showed no indignation whatever at the proposition. Her mother's eternal suggestion had schooled her to the acceptance of something of the kind, and her weak nature made it easy to her to grasp at any way out of the difficulty. She stood with downcast eyes idly picking at the sleeve of her dress, seeming to have tacitly acquiesced in the proposal. Both men instinctively realizing this pulled each a coin from his pocket, spun it in the air, and dropped his other hand over the palm on which it lay. For a few seconds they remained thus, all silent. Then Abel, who was the more thoughtful of the men, spoke, Sarah is this good? As he spoke he removed the upper hand from the coin and placed the latter back in his pocket. Sarah was nettled. Good or bad, it's good enough for me take it or leave it as you like, she said, to which he replied quickly, nay lass aught that concerns you is good enough for me. I did but think of you lest you might have pain or disappointment hereafter. If you love Eric better nor me, in God's name say so, and I think I'm man enough to stand aside. Likewise, if I'm the one, don't make us both miserable for life. Face to face with the difficulty, Sarah's weak nature proclaimed itself. She put her hands before her face and began to cry, 
saying it was my mother. She keeps telling me the silence which followed was broken by Eric, who said hotly to Abel, let the lass alone, can't you if she wants to choose this way, let her. It's good enough for me and for you, too she's said it now, and must abide by it. Hereupon Sarah turned upon him in sudden fury, and cried, hold your tongue what is it to you, at any rate, and she resumed her crying. Eric was so flabbergasted that he had not a word to say, but stood looking particularly foolish, with his mouth open and his hands held out with the coin still between them. All were silent till Sarah, taking her hands from her face laughed hysterically and said, as you two can't make up your minds, I'm going home, and she turned to go. Stop, says Abel, in an authoritative voice. Eric, you hold the coin, and I'll cry. Now, before we settle it, let us clearly understand, the man who wins takes all the money that we both have got, brings it to Bristol and ships on a voyage and trades with it. Then he comes back and marries Sarah, and they two keep all, whatever there may be, as the result of the trading. Is this what we understand? Single quote why yes, said Eric. I'll marry him on my next birthday, said Sarah. Having said it the intolerably mercenary spirit of her action seemed to strike her, and impulsively she turned away with a bright blush. Fire seemed to sparkle in the eyes of both men. Said Eric, a year so be the man that wins is to have one year. Toss, cried Abel, and the coin spun in the air. Eric caught it, and again held it between his outstretched hands. Heads, cried Abel, a pallor sweeping over his face as he spoke. As he leaned forward to look Sarah leaned forward too, and their heads almost touched. He could feel her hair blowing on his cheek, and it thrilled through him like fire. Eric lifted his upper band. The coin lay with its head up. Abel stepped forward and took Sarah in his arms. With a curse Eric hurled the coin far into the sea. Then he leaned against the flagstaff and scowled at the others with his hands thrust deep into his pockets. Abel whispered wild words of passion and delight into Sarah's ears, and as she listened she began to believe that fortune had rightly interpreted the wishes of her secret heart, and that she loved Abel best. Presently Abel looked up and caught sight of Eric's face as the last ray of sunset struck it. The red light intensified the natural ruddiness of his complexion, and he looked as though he were steeped in blood. Abel did not mind his scowl, for now that his own heart was at rest he could feel unalloyed pity for his friend. He stepped over meaning to comfort him, and held out his hand, saying, It was my chance, old lad. Don't grudge it me. I'll try to make Sarah a happy woman, and you shall be a brother to us both. Brother be damned, was all the answer Eric made, as he turned away. When he had gone a few steps down the rocky path he turned and came back. Standing before Abel and Sarah, who had their arms round each other, he said, You have a year. Make the most of it and be sure you're in time to claim your wife be back to have your bands up in time to be married on the 11th of April. If you're not, I tell you I shall have my bands up, and you may get back too late. What do you mean, 
Eric, you are mad. No more mad than you are, Abel Behenna. You go, that's your chance I stay, that's mine I don't mean to let the grass grow under my feet. Sarah cared no more for you than for me five minutes ago, and she may come back to that five minutes after you're gone you won by a point only the game may change. Single quote the game won't change, says Abel shortly. Sarah, you'll be true to me you won't marry till I return for a year, added Eric, quickly. That's the bargain. I promise for the year, said Sarah. A dark look came over Abel's face, and he was about to speak, but he mastered himself and smiled. I mustn't be too hard or get angry tonight come. Eric we played and fought together. I won fairly. I played fairly all the game of our wooing you know that as well as I do. And now when I am going away, I shall look to my old and true comrade to help me when I am gone. I'll help you none, said Eric. So help me God. It was God helped me, says Abel simply. Then let him go on helping you, says Eric angrily. Single quote the devil is good enough for me and without another word he rushed down the steep path and disappeared behind the rocks. When he had gone Abel hoped for some tender passage with Sarah, but the first remark she made chilled him. How lonely it all seems without Eric and this note sounded till he had left her at home and after. Early on the next morning Abel heard a noise at his door and on going out saw Eric walking rapidly away, a small canvas bag full of gold and silver lay on the threshold. On a small slip of paper pinned to it was written, take the money and go. I stay. God for you the devil for me remember the 11th of April. Dash Eric Zanson. That afternoon Abel went off to Bristol, and a week later sailed on the Star of the Sea bound for Pahang. His money including that which had been Eric's was on board in the shape of a venture of cheap toys. He had been advised by a shrewd old mariner of Bristol whom he knew, and who knew the ways of the Chersonese, who predicted that every penny invested would be returned with a shilling to boot. As the year wore on Sarah became more and more disturbed in her mind. Eric was always at hand to make love to her in his own persistent, masterful man, and to this she did not object. Only one letter came from Abel, to say that his venture had proved successful, and that he had sent some two hundred pounds to the bank at Bristol, and was trading with fifty pounds still remaining in goods for China, whither the star of the sea was bound and whence she would return to Bristol. He suggested that Eric's share of the venture should be returned to him with his share of the profits. This proposition was treated with anger by Eric, and as simply childish by Sarah's mother. More than six months had since then elapsed, but no other letter had come, and Eric's hopes which had been dashed down by the letter from Pahang, began to rise again. He perpetually assailed Sarah with an if, if Abel did not return, would she then marry him if the 11th of April went by without Abel being in the port? Would she give him over if Abel had taken his fortune, and married another girl on the head of it, would she marry him, Eric, as soon as the truth were known and so on in an endless variety of possibilities. 
the power of the strong will and the determined purpose over the woman's weaker nature became in time manifest. Sarah began to lose her faith in Abel and to regard Eric as a possible husband, and possible husband is in a woman's eye different to all other men. A new affection for him began to arise in her breast, and the daily familiarities of permitted courtship furthered the growing affection. Sarah began to regard Abel as rather a rock in the road of her life, and had it not been for her mother's constantly reminding her of the good fortune already laid by in the Bristol bank she would have tried to have shut her eyes altogether to the fact of Abel's existence. The 11th of April was Saturday, so that in order to have the marriage on that day it would be necessary that the bans should be called on Sunday the 22nd of March. From the beginning of that month Eric kept perpetually on the subject of Abel's absence, and his outspoken opinion that the latter was either dead or married began to become a reality to the woman's mind. As the first half of the month wore on Eric became more jubilant, and after church on the 15th he took Sarah for a walk to the Flagstaff Rock. There he asserted himself strongly, I told Abel, and you too that if he was not here to put up his bands in time for the 11th, I would put up mine for the 12th. Now the time has come when I mean to do it. He hasn't kept his word dash here Sarah struck him out of her weakness and indecision, single quote he hasn't broken it yet Eric ground his teeth with anger. If you mean to stick up for him, he said, as he smote his hands savagely on the flagstaff which sent forth a shivering murmur, Ellen Good. I'll keep my part of the bargain. On Sunday I shall give notice of the bans, and you can deny them in the church if you will. If Abel is in Pincastle on the 11th, he can have them cancelled, and his own put up. But till then, I take my course, and woe to anyone who stands in my way. With that he flung himself he down the rocky pathway, and Sarah could not but admire his Viking strength and spirit, as, crossing the hill, he strode away along the cliffs towards Bud. During the week no news was heard of Abel, and on Saturday Eric gave notice of the bands of marriage between himself and Sarah at Refuses. The clergyman would have remonstrated with him, for although nothing formal had been told to the neighbours, it had been understood since Abel's departure that on his return he was to marry Sarah. But Eric would not discuss the question. It is a painful subject, sir, he said with a firmness which the parson, who was a very young man, could not but be swayed by. Sully there is nothing against Sarah or me. Why should there be any bones made about the matter? The parson said no more and on the next day he read out the bands for the first time amidst an audible buzz from the congregation. Sarah was present, contrary to custom, and though she blushed furiously enjoyed her triumph over the other girls whose bands had not yet come. Before the week was over she began to make her wedding dress. Eric used to come and look at her at work and the sight thrilled through him. He used to say all sorts of pretty things to her at such times, and there were to both delicious moments of love-making. The bands were read a second time on the 29th, 
and Eric's hope grew more and more fixed though there were to him moments of acute despair when he realized that the cup of happiness might be dashed from his lips at any moment, right up to the last. At such times he was full of passion desperate and remorseless and he ground his teeth and clenched his hands in a wild way as though some taint of the old berserker fury of his ancestors still lingered in his blood. On the Thursday of that week he looked in on Sarah and found her, amid a flood of sunshine, putting finishing touches to her white wedding gown. His own heart was full of gaiety and the sight of the woman who was so soon to be his own so occupied, filled him with the joy unspeakable, and he felt faint with languorous ecstasy. Bending over he kissed Sarah on the mouth, and then whispered in her rosy ear your wedding dress, Sarah and for me. As he drew back to admire her she looked up saucily, and said to him perhaps not for you. There is more than a week yet for Abel, and then cried out in dismay, for with a wild gesture and a fierce oath Eric dashed out of the house, banging the door behind him. The incident disturbed Sarah more than she could have thought possible, for it awoke all her fears and doubts and indecision afresh. She cried a little, and put by her dress, and to soothe herself went out to sit for a while on the summit of the flagstaff rock. When she arrived she found there a little group anxiously discussing the weather. The sea was calm and the sun bright, but across the sea were strange lines of darkness and light, and close into shore the rocks were fringed with foam, which spread out in great white curves and circles as the currents drifted. The wind had backed, and came in sharp, cold puffs. The blowhole, which ran under the flagstaff rock, from the rocky bay without to the harbour within, was booming at intervals and the seagulls were screaming ceaselessly as they wheeled about the entrance of the port. It looks bad, she heard an old fisherman say to the coast guard. I seen it just like this once before, when the East Indiaman Corom Andal went to pieces in Desert Bay. Sarah did not wait to hear more. She was of a timid nature where danger was concerned, and could not bear to hear of wrecks and disasters. She went home and resumed the completion of her dress, secretly determined to appease Eric when she should meet him with a sweet apology and to take the earliest opportunity of being even with him after her marriage. The old fisherman's weather prophecy was justified. That night at dusk a wild storm came on. The sea rose and lashed the western coasts from sky to Scilly and left a tale of disaster everywhere. The sailors and fishermen of Pink Castle all turned out on the rocks and cliffs and watched eagerly. Presently, by a flash of lightning, a catch was seen drifting under only a jib about half a mile outside the port. All eyes and all glasses were concentrated on her, waiting for the next flash, and when it came a chorus went up that it was the lovely Alice, trading between Bristol and Penzance and touching at all the little ports between. God help them, said the harbour master, for nothing in this world can save them when they are between Bud and Tintagel and the wind on shore. The coast guards exerted themselves, and, aided by brave hearts and willing hands, they brought the rocket apparatus up on the summit of the flagstaff rock. 
Then they burned blue lights so that those on board might see the harbor opening in case they could make any effort to reach it. They worked gallantly enough on board, but no skill or strength of man could avail. Before many minutes were over the lovely Alice rushed to her doom on the great island rock that guarded the mouth of the port. The screams of those on board were faintly borne on the tempest as they flung themselves into the sea in a last chance for life. The blue lights were kept burning, and eager eyes peered into the depths of the waters in case any face could be seen, and ropes were held ready to fling out in aid. But never a face was seen, and the willing arms rested idle. Eric was there amongst his fellows. His old Icelandic origin was never more apparent than in that wild hour. He took a rope, and shouted in the ear of the harbour master, I shall go down on the rock over the seal cave. The tide is running up, and someone may drift in there, keep back, man, came the answer. Ere you mad one slip on that rock and you are lost, and no man could keep his feet in the dark on such a place in such a tempest, not a bit came the reply. You remember how Abel Behenna saved me there on a night like this when my boat went on the gull rock. He dragged me up from the deep water in the seal cave, and now someone may drift in there again as I did, and he was gone into the darkness. The projecting rock hid the light on the flagstaff rock, but he knew his way too well to miss it. His boldness and sureness of foot standing to him, he shortly stood on the great round-topped rock cut away beneath by the action of the waves over the entrance of the seal cave, where the water was fathomless. There he stood in comparative safety, for the concave shape of the rock beat back the waves with their own force, and though the water below him seemed to boil like a seething cauldron, just beyond the spot there was a space of almost calm. The rock, too, seemed here to shut off the sound of the gale, and he listened as well as watched. As he stood there ready, with his coil of rope poised to throw, he thought he heard below him, just beyond the whirl of the water, a faint, despairing cry. He echoed it with a shout that rang into the night then he waited for the flash of lightning, and as it passed flung his rope out into the darkness where he had seen a face rising through the swirl of the foam. The rope was caught, for he felt a pull on it, and he shouted again in his mighty voice, Tee it round your waist, and I shall pull you up. Then when he felt that it was fast he moved along the rock to the far side of the sea cave, where the deep water was something stiller, and where he could get foothold secure enough to drag the rescued man on the overhanging rock. He began to pull and shortly he knew from the rope taken in that the man he was now rescuing must soon be close to the top of the rock. He steadied himself for a moment, and drew a long breath, that he might at the next effort complete the rescue. He had just bent his back to the work when a flash of lightning revealed to each other the two men the rescuer and the rescued. Eric Zansom and Abel Behenno were face to face and none knew of the meeting save themselves and God. On the instant a wave of passion swept through Eric's heart. All his hopes were shattered, and with the hatred of Ken his eyes looked out. He saw in the instant of recognition the joy in Abel's face that his was the hand to succor him, and this intensified his hate. 
Whilst the passion was on him he started back, and the rope ran out between his hands. His moment of hate was followed by an impulse of his better manhood, but it was too late. Before he could recover himself, Abel encumbered with the rope that should have aided him, was plunged with a despairing cry back into the darkness of the devouring sea. Then, feeling all the madness and the doom of Cairn upon him, Eric rushed back over the rocks, heedless of the danger and eager only for one thing to be amongst other people whose living noises would shut out that last cry which seemed to ring still in his ears. When he regained the flagstaff rock the men surrounded him, and through the fury of the storm he heard the harbour master say we feared you were lost when we heard a cry how white you were where is your rope was there anyone drifted in, no one, he shouted in answer, for he felt that he could never explain that he had let his old comrade slip back into the sea, and at the very place and under the very circumstances in which that comrade had saved his own life. He hoped by one bold lie to set the matter at rest forever. There was no one to bear witness and if he should have to carry that still white face in his eyes and that despairing cry in his ears forevermore at least none should know of it. No one, he cried, more loudly still. I slipped on the rock, and the rope fell into the sea, so saying he left them, and, rushing down the steep path, gained his own cottage and locked himself within. The remainder of that night he passed lying on his bed dressed and motionless staring upwards, and seeming to see through the darkness a pale face gleaming wet in the lightning, with its glad recognition turning to ghastly despair, and to hear a cry which never ceased to echo in his soul. In the morning the storm was over and all was smiling again, except that the sea was still boisterous with its unspent fury. Great pieces of wreck drifted into the port, and the sea around the island rock was strewn with others. Two bodies also drifted into the harbour one the master of the wreck catch, the other a strange seaman whom no one knew. Sarah saw nothing of Eric till the evening, and then he only looked in for a minute. He did not come into the house, but simply put his head in through the open window. Al, Sarah! He called out in a loud voice, though to her it did not ring truly, is the wedding dress done Sunday week, mind Sunday week. Sarah was glad to have the reconciliation so easy. But, woman-like, when she saw the storm was over and her own fears groundless, she at once repeated the cause of offence. Sunday so be it, she said without looking up, if Abel isn't there on Saturday. Then she looked up saucily though her heart was full of fear of another outburst on the part of her impetuous lover. But the window was empty. Eric had taken himself off, and with a pout she resumed her work. She saw Eric no more till Sunday afternoon, after the bands had been called the third time, when he came up to her before all the people with an air of proprietorship which half pleased and half annoyed her. Not yet, mister, she said pushing him away, as the other girls giggled. Wait till Sunday next, if you please the day after Saturday, she added, looking at him saucily. The girls giggled again, and the young men guffawed. They thought it was the snub that touched him so that he became as white as a sheet as he turned away. But Sarah, who knew more than they did, laughed, 
for she saw triumph through the spasm of pain that overspread his face. The week passed uneventfully. However, as Saturday drew nigh, Sarah had occasional moments of anxiety, and as to Eric he went about at night time like a man possessed. He restrained himself when others were by, but now and again he went down amongst the rocks and caves and shouted aloud. This seemed to relieve him somewhat, and he was better able to restrain himself for some time after. All Saturday he stayed in his own house and never left it. As he was to be married on the morrow, the neighbors thought it was shyness on his part, and did not trouble or notice him. Only once was he disturbed, and that was when the chief boatman came to him and sat down, and after a pause said, Eric, I was over in Bristol yesterday. I was in the ropemakers getting a coil to replace the one you lost the night of the storm, and there I saw Michael Heavens of this place, who is a salesman there. He told me that Abel Behenna had come home the week ere last on the Star of the Sea from Canton, and that he had lodged a sight of money in the Bristol Bank in the name of Sarah Behenna. He told Michael so himself and that he had taken passage on the lovely Alice to Pink Castle. Bear up, man, for Eric had with a groan dropped his head on his knees, with his face between his hands. Single quote he was your old comrade, I know, but you couldn't help him. He must have gone down with the rest that awful night. I thought I'd better tell you, lest it might come some other way and you might keep Sarah at refuses from being frightened. They were good friends once, and women take these things to heart. It would not do to let her be pained with such a thing on her wedding day. Then he rose and went away, leaving Eric still sitting disconsolately with his head on his knees. Poor fellow, murmured the chief boatman to himself. Single quote H.G. takes it to heart. Well, well right enough they were true comrades once, and Abel saved him the afternoon of the day, when the children had left school, they strayed as usual on half holidays along the quay and the paths by the cliffs. Presently some of them came running in a state of great excitement to the harbour, where a few men were unloading a cold catch, and a great man who were superintending the operation. One of the children called out, there is a porpoise in the harbour mouth we saw it come through the blowhole it had a long tail, and was deep under the water. It was no porpoise, said another. It was a seal. But it had a long tail it came out of the seal cave. The other children bore various testimony, but on two points they were unanimous it, whatever it was, had come through the blowhole deep under the water, and had a long, thin tail a tail so long that they could not see the end of it. There was much unmerciful chaffing of the children by the men on this point, but as it was evident that they had seen something, quite a number of persons, young and old, male and female, went along the high paths on either side of the harbour mouth to catch a glimpse of this new addition to the fauna of the sea, a long-tailed porpoise or seal. The tide was now coming in. There was a slight breeze and the surface of the water was rippled so that it was only at moments that anyone could see clearly into the deep water. After a spell of watching a woman called out that she saw something moving up the channel, just below where she was standing. There was a stampede to the spot, 
but by the time the crowd had gathered the breeze had freshened, and it was impossible to see with any distinctness below the surface of the water. On being questioned the woman described what she had seen, but in such an incoherent way that the whole thing was put down as an effect of imagination. Had it not been for the children's report she would not have been credited at all. Her semi-hysterical statement that what she saw was like a pig with the entrails out was only thought anything of by an old coast guard, who shook his head but did not make any remark. For the remainder of the daylight this man was seen always on the bank, looking into the water, but always with disappointment manifest on his face. Eric arose early on the next morning he had not slept all night, and it was a relief to him to move about in the light. He shaved himself with a hand that did not tremble, and dressed himself in his wedding clothes. There was a haggard look on his face, and he seemed as though he had grown years older in the last few days. Still there was a wild, uneasy light of triumph in his eyes, and he kept murmuring to himself over and over again, "'Tis is my wedding day Abel cannot claim her now living or dead dash living or dead living or dead." He sat in his armchair, waiting with an uncanny quietness for the church hour to arrive. When the bell began to ring he arose and passed out of his house, closing the door behind him. He looked at the river and saw the tide had just turned. In the church he sat with Sarah and her mother, holding Sarah's hand tightly in his all the time, as though he feared to lose her. When the service was over they stood up together, and were married in the presence of the entire congregation. For no one left the church. Both made the responses clearly Eric's being even on the defiant side. When the wedding was over Sarah took her husband's arm, and they walked away together, the boys and younger girls being cuffed by their elders into a decorous behavior, for they would fain have followed close behind their heels. The way from the church led down to the back of Eric's cottage, a narrow passage being between it and that of his next neighbor. When the bridal couple had passed through this the remainder of the congregation, who had followed them at a little distance, were startled by a long, shrill scream from the bride. They rushed through the passage and found her on the bank with wild eyes, pointing to the riverbed opposite Eric Zanson's door. The falling tide had deposited there the body of Abel Behenna Stark upon the broken rocks. The rope trailing from its waist had been twisted by the current round the mooring post, and had held it back whilst the tide had ebbed away from it. The right elbow had fallen in a chink in the rock leaving the hand outstretched toward Sarah, with the open palm upward as though it were extended to receive hers, the pale drooping fingers open to the clasp. All that happened afterwards was never quite known to Sarah Sanson. Whenever she would try to recollect there would become a buzzing in her ears and a dimness in her eyes, and all would pass away. The only thing that she could remember of it all and this she never forgot was Eric's breathing heavily with his face whiter than that of the dead man, as he muttered under his breath, Devil's help, Devil's faith, Devil's price. The burial of the rats leaving Paris by the Orleans Road, cross the Ensigny, and, turning to the right, you find yourself in a somewhat wild and not at all savoury district. Right and left, before and behind, 
On every side rise great heaps of dust and waste accumulated by the process of time. Paris has its night as well as its day life, and the sojourn who enters his hotel in the Rue de Rivoli or the Rue Saint-Honneur late at night or leaves it early in the morning, can guess, in coming near Montrouge if he has not done so already the purpose of those great wagons that look like boilers on wheels which he finds halting everywhere as he passes. Every city has its peculiar institutions created out of its own needs, and one of the most notable institutions of Paris is its rag-picking population. In the early morning and Parisian life commences at an early hour may be seen in most streets standing on the pathway opposite every court and alley and between every few houses, as still in some American cities, even in parts of New York, large wooden boxes into which the domestics or tenement holders empty the accumulated dust of the past day. Round these boxes gather and pass on, when the work is done, to fresh fields of labor and pastures new, squalid hungry-looking men and women, the implements of whose craft consist of a coarse bag or basket slung over the shoulder and a little rake with which they turn over and probe and examine in the minutest manner the dustbins. They pick up and deposit in their baskets, by aid of their rakes, whatever they may find, with the same facility as a Chinaman uses his chopsticks. Paris is a city of centralization and centralization and classification are closely allied. In the early times, when centralization is becoming a fact, its forerunner is classification. All things which are similar or analogous become grouped together, and from the grouping of groups rises one whole or central point. We see radiating many long arms with innumerable tentaculae, and in the center rises a gigantic head with a comprehensive brain and keen eyes to look on every side and ears sensitive to hear and a voracious mouth to swallow. Other cities resemble all the birds and beasts and fishes whose appetites and digestions are normal. Paris alone is the analogical apotheosis of the octopus. Product of centralization carried to an ad absurdum, it fairly represents the devil fish and in no respects is the resemblance more curious than in the similarity of the digestive apparatus. Those intelligent tourists who, having surrendered their individuality into the hands of Messrs. Cook or Gaze, do Paris in three days, are often puzzled to know how it is that the dinner which in London would cost about six shillings, can be had for three francs in a cafe in the Palais Royal. They need have no more wonder if they will but consider the classification which is a theoretic speciality of Parisian life, and adopt all round the fact from which the chiffonier has his genesis. The Paris of 1850 was not like the Paris of today, and those who see the Paris of Napoleon and Baron Horseman can hardly realize the existence of the state of things 45 years ago. Amongst other things, however, which have not changed are those districts where the waste is gathered. Dust is dust all the world over, in every age, and the family likeness of dust heaps is perfect. The traveller, therefore, who visits the environs of Montrouge can go-go back in fancy without difficulty to the year 1850. In this year I was making a prolonged stay in Paris. I was very much in love with the young lady who, 
though she returned my passion, so far yielded to the wishes of her parents that she had promised not to see me or to correspond with me for a year. I, too, had been compelled to accede to these conditions under a vague hope of parental approval. During the term of probation I had promised to remain out of the country and not to write to my dear one until the expiration of the year. Naturally the time went heavily with me. There was not one of my own family or circle who could tell me of Alice, and none of her own folk had, I am sorry to say, sufficient generosity to send me even an occasional word of comfort regarding her health and well-being. I spent six months wandering about Europe, but as I could find no satisfactory distraction in travel, I determined to come to Paris, where, at least, I would be within easy hail of London in case any good fortune should call me thither before the appointed time. That hop deferred maketh the heart sick was never better exemplified than in my case, for in addition to the perpetual longing to see the face I loved there was always with me a harrowing anxiety lest some accident should prevent me showing Alice in due time that I had, throughout the long period of probation, been faithful to her trust and my own love. Thus, every adventure which I undertook had a fierce pleasure of its own, for it was fraught with possible consequences greater than it would have ordinarily borne. Like all travellers I exhausted the places of most interest in the first month of my stay, and was driven in the second month to look for amusement whithersoever I might. Having made sundry journeys to the better-known suburbs, I began to see that there was a terra incognita, in so far as the guide-book was concerned, in the social wilderness lying between these attractive points. Accordingly I began to systematize my researches, and each day took up the thread of my exploration at the place where I had on the previous day dropped it. In the process of time my wanderings led me near Montrouge, and I saw that hereabouts lay the ultimathal of social exploration a country as little known as that round the source of the White Nil. And so I determined to investigate philosophically the Schiffer near his habitat, his life, and his means of life. The job was an unsavory one difficult of accomplishment, and with little hope of adequate reward. However, despite reason, obstinacy prevailed, and I entered into my new investigation with a keener energy than I could have summoned to aid me in any investigation leading to any end, valuable or worthy. One day, late in a fine afternoon, toward the end of September, I entered the Holy of Holies of the City of Dust. The place was evidently the recognized abode of a number of chiffoniers, for some sort of arrangement was manifested in the formation of the dust heaps near the road. I passed amongst these heaps, which stood like orderly sentries, determined to penetrate further and trace dust to its ultimate location. As I passed along I saw behind the dust heaps a few forms that flitted to and fro evidently watching with interest the advent of any stranger to such a place. The district was like a small Switzerland, and as I went forward my tortuous course shut out the path behind me. Presently I got into what seemed a small city or community of chiffoniers. There were a number of shanties or huts, 
such as may be met with in the remote parts of the bog of Allan rude places with wattled walls, plastered with mud and roofs of rude thatch made from stable refuse such places as one would not like to enter for any consideration, and which even in watercolour could only look picturesque if judiciously treated. In the midst of these huts was one of the strangest adaptations I cannot say habitations I had ever seen. An immense old wardrobe, the colossal remnant of some boudoir of Charles VII, or Henry II, had been converted into a dwelling house. The double doors lay open, so that the entire menage was open to public view. In the open half of the wardrobe was a common sitting room of some four feet by six, in which sat, smoking their pipes round a charcoal brazier, no fewer than six old soldiers of the First Republic, with their uniforms torn and worn threadbare. Evidently they were of the Mvesajet class. Their bleary eyes and limp jaws told plainly of a common love of absinthe. And their eyes had that haggard, worn look of slumbering ferocity which follows hard in the wake of drink. The other side stood as of old with its shelves intact, save that they were cut to half their depth, and in each shelf of which there were six, was a bed made with rags and straw. The half-dozen of worthies who inhabited this structure looked at me curiously as I passed. And when I looked back after going a little way I saw their heads together in a whispered conference. I did not like the look of this at all, for the place was very lonely, and the men looked very, very villainous. However, I did not see any cause for fear, and went on my way, penetrating further and further into the Sahara. The way was tortuous to a degree, and from going around in a series of semicircles, as one goes in skating with the Dutch roll, I got rather confused with regard to the points of the compass. When I had penetrated a little way I saw, as I turned the corner of a half-made heap, sitting on a heap of straw an old soldier with threadbare coat. Hello, said I to myself. Single quote the First Republic is well represented here in its soldiery. As I passed him the old man never even looked up at me, but gazed on the ground with stolid persistency. Again I remarked to myself, see what a life of rude warfare can do this old man's curiosity is a thing of the past. When I had gone a few steps, however, I looked back suddenly, and saw that curiosity was not dead, for the veteran had raised his head and was regarding me with a very queer expression. He seemed to me to look very like one of the six worthies in the press. When he saw me looking he dropped his head. And without thinking further of him I went on my way, satisfied that there was a strange likeness between these old warriors. Presently I met another old soldier in a similar manner. He, too, did not notice me whilst I was passing. By this time it was getting late in the afternoon, and I began to think of retracing my steps. Accordingly I turned to go back, but could see a number of tracks leading between different mounds and could not ascertain which of them I should take. In my perplexity I wanted to see someone of whom to ask the way but could see no one. I determined to go on a few mounds further and so try to see someone not a veteran. I gained my object, 
for after going a couple of hundred yards I saw before me a single shanty such as I had seen before with, however, the difference that this was not one for living in, but merely a roof with three walls open in front. From the evidences which the neighborhood exhibited I took it to be a place for sorting. Within it was an old woman wrinkled and bent with age. I approached her to ask the way. She rose as I came close and I asked her my way. She immediately commenced a conversation. And it occurred to me that here in the very center of the kingdom of dust was the place to gather details of the history of Parisian rag picking particularly as I could do so from the lips of one who looked like the oldest inhabitant. I began my inquiries and the old woman gave me most interesting answers she had been one of the sit-uses who sat daily before the guillotine and had taken an active part among the women who signalized themselves by their violence in the revolution. While we were talking she said suddenly, but Monsieur must be tired standing, and dusted a rickety old stool for me to sit down. I hardly liked to do so for many reasons but the poor old woman was so civil that I did not like to run the risk of hurting her by refusing, and moreover the conversation of one who had been at the taking of the Bastille was so interesting that I sat down and so our conversation went on. While we were talking an old man older and more bent and wrinkled even than the woman appeared from behind the shanty. Her is Pierre, said she. Monsieur can hear stories now if he wishes, for Pierre was in everything, from the Bastille to Waterloo. The old man took another stool at my request and we plunged into a sea of revolutionary reminiscences. This old man, albeit clothed like a scarecrow, was like any one of the six veterans. I was now sitting in the center of the low hut with the woman on my left hand and the man on my right, each of them being somewhat in front of me. The place was full of all sorts of curious objects of lumber, and of many things that I wished far away. In one corner was a heap of rags which seemed to move from the number of vermin it contained, and in the other a heap of bones whose odor was something shocking. Every now and then, glancing at the heaps, I could see the gleaming eyes of some of the rats which infested the place. These loathsome objects were bad enough but what looked even more dreadful was an old butcher sacks with an iron handle stained with clots of blood leaning up against the wall on the right hand side. Still, these things did not give me much concern. The talk of the two old people was so fascinating that I stayed on and on, till the evening came and the dust heaps threw dark shadows over the veils between them. After a time I began to grow uneasy. I could not tell how or why, but somehow I did not feel satisfied. Uneasiness is an instinct and means warning. The psychic faculties are often the sentries of the intellect, and when they sound alarm the reason begins to act, although perhaps not consciously. This was so with me. I began to bethink me where I was and by what surrounded, and to wonder how I should fare in case I should be attacked and then the thought suddenly burst upon me, although without any overt cause, that I was in danger. Prudence whispered, single quote be still and make no sign, and so I was still and made no sign, for I knew that four cunning eyes were on me. 
four eyes if not more. My god, what a horrible thought the whole shanty might be surrounded on three sides with villains I might be in the midst of a band of such desperados as only half a century of periodic revolution could produce. With a sense of danger my intellect and observation quickened, and I grew more watchful than was my wont. I noticed that the old woman's eyes were constantly wandering towards my hands. I looked at them too, and saw the cause my rings. On my left little finger I had a large signet and on the right a good diamond. I thought that if there was any danger my first care was to avert suspicion. Accordingly I began to work the conversation round the rack picking to the trains of the things found there and so by easy stages to jewels. Then, seizing a favorable opportunity, I asked the old woman if she knew anything of such things. She answered that she did, a little. I held out my right hand, and, showing her the diamond, asked her what she thought of that. She answered that her eyes were bad, and stooped over my hand. I said as nonchalantly as I could, Pardon me you will see better thus and taking it off handed it to her. An unholy light came into her withered old face as she touched it. She stole one glance at me swift and keen as a flash of lightning. She bent over the ring for a moment, her face quite concealed as though examining it. The old man looked straight out of the front of the shanty before him at the same time fumbling in his pockets and producing a screw of tobacco in a paper and a pipe, which he proceeded to fill. I took advantage of the pause and a momentary rest from the searching eyes on my face to look carefully round the place, now dim and shadowy in the gloaming. There still lay all the heaps of varied reeking foulness. There the terrible blood-stained axe leaning against the wall in the right-hand corner, and everywhere, despite the gloom, the baleful glitter of the eyes of the rats. I could see them even through some of the chinks of the boards at the back low down close to the ground. But stay these latter eyes seemed more than usually large and bright and baleful for an instant my heart stood still, and I felt in that whirling condition of mind in which one feels a sort of spiritual drunkenness, and as though the body is only maintained erect high that there is no time for it to fall before recovery. Then, in another second, I was calm-coldly calm, with all my energies in full vigor, with a self-control which I felt to be perfect and with all my feeling and instincts alert. Now I knew the full extent of my danger, I was watched and surrounded by desperate people I could not even guess at how many of them were lying there on the ground behind the shanty, waiting for the moment to strike. I knew that I was big and strong, and they knew it, too. They knew also, as I did, that I was an Englishman and would make a fight for it. And so we waited. I had, I felt, gained an advantage in the last few seconds for I knew my danger and understood the situation. Now, I thought, is the test of my courage the enduring test, the fighting test may come later the old woman raised her head and said to me in a satisfied kind of way, a very fine ring, indeed a beautiful ring oh, me I once had such rings, plenty of them, 
and bracelets and deerings oh for in those fine days i led the town a dance but they've forgotten me now they've forgotten me they why they never heard of me perhaps their grandfathers remember me some of them and she laughed a harsh croaking laugh and then i am bound to say that she astonished me for she handed me back the ring with a certain suggestion of old-fashioned grace which was not without its pathos the old man eyed her with a sort of sudden ferocity, half rising from his stool, and said to me suddenly and hoarsely, Let me see, I was about to hand the ring when the old woman said, No, no, do not give up to Pierre, Pierre is eccentric. He loses things. And such a pretty ring, cat, said the old man, savagely. Suddenly the old woman said, rather more loudly than was necessary, Wait I shall tell you something about a ring. There was something in the sound of her voice that jarred upon me. Perhaps it was my hypersensitiveness, wrought up as I was to such a pitch of nervous excitement, but I seemed to think that she was not addressing me. As I stole a glance round the place I saw the eyes eye of the rats in the bone heaps, but missed the eyes along the back. But even as I looked I saw them again appear. The old woman's weight had given me a respite from attack, and the men had sunk back to their reclining posture. I once lost a ring a beautiful diamond hoop that belonged to a queen, and which was given to me by a farmer of the taxes, who afterwards cut his throat because I sent him away. I thought it must have been stolen, and taxed my people. But I could get no trace. The police came and suggested that it had found its way to the drain. We descended I in my fine clothes, for I would not trust them with my beautiful ring I know more of the drains since then, and of rats, too but I shall never forget the horror of the place alive with blazing eyes, a wall of them just outside the light of our torches. Well, we got beneath my house. We searched the outlet of the drain and there in the filth found my ring, and we came out. But we found something else also before we came as we were coming toward the opening a lot of sewer rats human ones this time came towards us. They told the police that one of their number had gone into the drain, but had not returned. He had gone in only shortly before we had, and, if lost, could hardly be far off. They asked help to seek him. So we turned back. They tried to prevent me going, but I insisted. It was a new excitement, and had I not recovered miring not far did we go till we came on something. There was but little water, and the bottom of the drain was raised with brick, rubbish, and much matter of the kind. He had made a fight for it, even when his torch had gone out but they were too many for him they had not been long about it the bones were still warm. But they were picked clean. They had even eaten their own dead ones and there were bones of rats as well as of the man. They took it cool enough those other the human ones and joked of their comrade when they found him dead, though they would have helped him living. Bar what matters it life or death and had you no fear? I asked her. Fear, she said with a laugh. Single quote me have fear ask Pierre but I was younger then, and, as I came through that horrible drain with its wall of greedy eyes, always moving with the circle of the light from the torches, I did not feel easy. I kept on before the men, 
Though it is a way I have I never let the men get it before me. All I want is a chance and a means and they ate him up took every trace away except the bones. And no one knew it, nor no sound of him was ever heard. Here she broke into a chuckling fit of the ghastliest merriment which it was ever my lot to hear and see. A great poetess describes her heroine singing, Oh to see or hear her singing scarce I know which is the divinest. And I can apply the same idea to the old crone in all save the divinity, for I scarce could tell which was the most hellish the harsh, malicious, satisfied, cruel laugh, or the leering grin, and the horrible square opening of the mouth like a tragic mask, and the yellow gleam of the few discoloured teeth in the shapeless gums. In that laugh and with that grin and the chuckling satisfaction I knew as well as if it had been spoken to me in words of thunder that my murder was settled, and the murderers only bided the proper time for its accomplishment. I could read between the lines of her gruesome story the command to her accomplices. Wait, she seemed to say, bird your time. I shall strike the first blow. Find the weapon for me and I shall make the opportunity he shall not escape keep him quiet, and then no one will be wiser. There will be no outcry, and the rats will do their work. It was growing darker and darker. The night was coming. I stole a glance round the shanty, still all the same the bloody axe in the corner, the heaps of filth, and the eyes on the bone heaps and in the crannies of the floor. The air had been still ostensibly filling his pipe, he now struck a light and began to puff away at it. The old woman said, Dear heart, how dark it is Pierre, like a good lad, light the lamp. Pierre got up and with the lighted match in his hand touched the wick of a lamp which hung at one side of the entrance to the shanty, and which had a reflector that threw the light all over the place. It was evidently that which was used for their sorting at night. Not that, stupid not that the lantern she called out to him. He immediately blew it out, saying, All right, mother I'll find it, and he hustled about the left corner of the room the old woman saying through the darkness, The lantern the lantern no that is the light that is most useful to us poor folks. The lantern was the friend of the revolution it is the friend of the chiffonier it helps us when all else fails. Hardly had she said the word when there was a kind of creaking of the whole place, and something was steadily dragged over the roof. Again I seemed to read between the lines of her words. I knew the lesson of the lantern. And of you get on the roof with a noose and strangle him as he passes out if we fail within. As I looked out of the opening I saw the loop of a rope outlined black against the lurid sky. I was now, indeed, Beset Pierre was not long in finding the lantern. I kept my eyes fixed through the darkness on the old woman. Pierre struck his light, and by its flash I saw the old woman raise from the ground beside her where it had mysteriously appeared, and then hide in the folds of her gown, a long sharp knife or dagger. It seemed to be like a butcher's sharpening iron fine to a keen point. The lantern was lit. Bring it here. Pierre, she said. Place it in the doorway where we can see it. See how nice it is it shuts out the darkness from us. It is just right, just right for her and her purposes it threw all its light on my face, 
leaving in gloom the faces of both Pierre and the woman, who sat outside of me on each side. I felt that the time of action was approaching, but I knew now that the first signal and movement would come from the woman, and so watched her. I was all unarmed, but I had made up my mind what to do. At the first movement I would seize the butcher sacks in the right-hand corner and fight my way out. At least, I would die hard. I stole a glance round to fix its exact locality so that I could not fail to seize it at the first effort, for then, if ever, time and accuracy would be precious. Good God it was gone all the horror of the situation burst upon me. But the bitterest thought of all was that if the issue of the terrible position should be against me Alice would infallibly suffer. Either she would believe me false and any lover, or anyone who has ever been one, can imagine the bitterness of the thought or else she would go on loving long after I had been lost to her and to the world, so that her life would be broken and embittered, shattered with disappointment and despair. The very magnitude of the pain braced me up and nerved me to bear the dread scrutiny of the plotters. I think I did not betray myself. The old woman was watching me as a cat does a mouse. She had her right hand hidden in the folds of her gown, clutching, I knew, that long, cruel-looking dagger. Had she seen any disappointment in my face she would, I felt, have known that the moment had come and would have sprung on me like a tigress, certain of taking me unprepared. I looked out into the night, and there I saw new cause for danger. Before and around the hut were at a little distance some shadowy forms. They were quite still, but I knew that they were all alert and on guard. Small chance for me now in that direction. Again I stole a glance round the place. In moments of great excitement and of great danger, which is excitement, the mind works very quickly, and the keenness of the faculties which depend on the mind grows in proportion. I now felt this. In an instant I took in the whole situation. I saw that the axe had been taken through a small hole made in one of the rotten boards. How rotten they must be to allow of such a thing being done without a particle of noise. The hut was a regular murder trap, and was guarded all around. A grotta lay on the roof ready to entangle me with his noose if I should escape the dagger of the old hag. In front the way was guarded by I know not how many watchers. And at the back was a row of desperate men I had seen their eyes still through the crack in the boards of the floor, when last I looked as they lay prone waiting for the signal to start erect. If it was to be ever. Now for it as nonchalantly as I could I turned slightly on my stool so as to get my right leg well under me. Then with a sudden jump, turning my head, and guarding it with my hands, and with the fighting instinct of the knights of old, I breathed my lady's name, and hurled myself against the back wall of the hut. Watchful as they were, the suddenness of my movement surprised both Pierre and the old woman. As I crashed through the rotten timbers I saw the old woman rise with a leap like a tiger and heard her low gasp of baffled rage. My feet lit on something that moved, and as I jumped away I knew that I had stepped on the back of one of the row of men lying on their faces outside the hut. I was torn with nails and splinters, but otherwise unhurt. 
Breathless I rushed up the mound in front of me, hearing as I went the dull crash of the shanty as it collapsed into a mass. It was a nightmare climb. The mound, though but low, was awfully steep, and with each step I took the mass of dust and cinders tore down with me and gave way under my feet. The dust rose and choked me. It was sickening, foetid, awful. But my climb was, I felt, for life or death, and I struggled on. The seconds seemed hours. But the few moments I had in starting, combined with my youth and strength, gave me a great advantage, and, though several forms struggled after me high deadly silence which was more dreadful than any sound, I easily reached the top. Since then I have climbed the cone of Vesuvius, and as I struggled up that dreary steep amid the sulphurous fumes the memory of that awful night at Montrouge came back to me so vividly that I almost grew faint. The mound was one of the tallest in the region of dust, and as I struggled to the top, panting for breath and with my heart beating like a sledgehammer, I saw away to my left the dull red gleam of the sky, and nearer still the flashing of lights. Thank God I knew where I was now and where lay the road to Paris for two or three seconds I paused and looked back. My pursuers were still well behind me, but struggling up resolutely, and in deadly silence. Beyond, the shanty was a wreck of massive timber and moving forms. I could see it well, for flames were already bursting out. The rags and straw had evidently caught fire from the lantern. Still silence there not a sound these old wretches could die game, anyhow. I had no time for more than a passing glance, for as I cast an eye round the mount preparatory to making my descent I saw several dark forms rushing round it on either side to cut me off on my way. It was now a race for life. They were trying to head me on my way to Paris, and with the instinct of the moment I dashed down to the right-hand side. I was just in time, for, though I came as it seemed to me down the steep in a few steps, the wary old men who were watching me turned back, and one, as I rushed by into the opening between the two mounds in front, almost struck me a blow with that terrible butcher's axe. There could surely not be two such weapons about then began the really horrible chase. I easily ran ahead of the old men, and even when some younger ones and a few women joined in the hunt I easily distanced them. But I did not know the way, and I could not even guide myself by the light in the sky, for I was running away from it. I had heard that, unless of conscious purpose, hunted men turn always to the left, and so I found it now. And so, I suppose, knew also my pursuers, who were more animals than men, and with cunning or instincts had found out such secrets for themselves, for on finishing a quick spurt, after which I intended to take a moment's breathing space, I suddenly saw ahead of me two or three forms swiftly passing behind the mound to the right. I was in the spider's web now indeed but with the thought of this new danger came the resource of the hunted, and so I darted down the next turning to the right. I continued in this direction for some hundred yards, and then, making a turn to the left again, felt certain that I had, at any rate, avoided the danger of being surrounded. But not of pursuit, 
for on came the rabble after me, steady, dogged, relentless, and still in grim silence. In the greater darkness the mounds seemed now to be somewhat smaller than before, although for the night was closing they looked bigger in proportion. I was now well ahead of my pursuers, so I made a dart up the mound in front. Oh joy of joys I was close to the edge of this inferno of dust heaps. Away behind me the red light of Paris was in the sky, and towering up behind rose the heights of Montmartre a dim light, with here and there brilliant points like stars. Restored to vigor in a moment, I ran over the few remaining mounds of decreasing size, and found myself on the level land beyond. Even then, however, the prospect was not inviting. All before me was dark and dismal, and I had evidently come on one of those dank, low-lying waste places which are found here and there in the neighborhood of great cities. Places of waste and desolation, where the space is required for the ultimate agglomeration of all that is noxious, and the ground is so poor as to create no desire of occupancy even in the lowest squatter. With eyes accustomed to the gloom of the evening, and away now from the shadows of those dreadful dust heaps, I could see much more easily than I could a little while ago. It might have been, of course, that the glare in the sky of the lights of Paris, though the city was some miles away, was reflected here. Howsoever it was, I saw well enough to take bearings for certainly some little distance around me. In front was a bleak, flat waste that seemed almost dead level, with here and there the dark shimmering of stagnant pools. Seemingly far off on the right, amid a small cluster of scattered lights, rose a dark mass of Fort Montrouge, and away to the left in the dim distance, pointed with stray gleams from cottage windows, the lights in the sky showed the locality of Bicetta. A moment's thought decided me to take to the right and try to reach Montrouge. There at least would be some sort of safety, and I might possibly long before come on some of the crossroads which I knew. Somewhere, not far off, must lie the strategic road made to connect the outlying chain of forts circling the city. Then I looked back. Coming over the mounds, and outlined black against the glare of the Parisian horizon. I saw several moving figures, and still away to the right several more deploying out between me and my destination. They evidently meant to cut me off in this direction, and so my choice became constricted. It lay now between going straight ahead or turning to the left. Stooping to the ground, so as to get the advantage of the horizon as a line of sight, I looked carefully in this direction, but could detect no sign of my enemies. I argued that as they had not guarded or were not trying to guard that point, there was evidently danger to me there already. So I made up my mind to go straight on before me. It was not an inviting prospect, and as I went on the reality grew worse. The ground became soft and oozy, and now and again gave way beneath me in a sickening kind of way. I seemed somehow to be going down for I saw round me places seemingly more elevated than where I was, and this in a place which from a little way back seemed dead level. I looked around, but could see none of my pursuers. This was strange, 
for all along these birds of the night had followed me through the darkness as well as though it was broad daylight. How I blamed myself for coming out in my light-colored tourist suit of tweed. The silence, and my not being able to see my enemies, whilst I felt that they were watching me, grew appalling, and in the hope of someone not of this ghastly crew hearing me I raised my voice and shouted several times.